Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back in this episode with our discussion of Lisa Tuttle's 1998 story, My Pathology. This is the second of two episodes on this. So if you're hearing this and you haven't listened to the first episode, uh, might be a good time to go check that out. Uh, these are bonus episodes that were commissioned by one of our awesome Patreon supporters. And of course, we really, really appreciate that support. And it's also just been great to add another author into our rotation as well. This has been one of the real awesome things about doing commissions is that this is a way for listeners to introduce us to uh, writers we don't know very well or at all, or certainly, you know, to get us a short story collection on the shelf that we can go back to uh, in the future as well. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure for us to be able to get these story collections in preparation to do, you know, one or two stories from the collections from Gogol to Karen Russell to Lisa Tuttle and to, to many other writers that now we have these great collections that we can return to. And uh, that that's awesome. So thank you to our Patreon supporter for commissioning this episode and to all of the supporters who commission episodes for us. Well, we've got our work cut out for us with this story. It's actually, like, um, I think, a much bigger story than than it seems like it is, you know, when you first get into it. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of different questions that we need to answer and a lot of different topics I think we need to address. So where do you want to start, Brandon? I don't know, Glenn. This, you're right. This is a big story and we could go down a lot of different paths and... Uh, maybe I should start off this prelude to our discussion rather than getting started <laughs> by pointing out something really that should uh, maybe be obvious, maybe not, which is that we are not women. And while we can talk about this story in terms of, you know, the the characters and motivations in terms of the plot and craft and technique, and we can really focus on the text, uh, I just want to say maybe for our listeners that I'm not sure that you and I are the best equipped to take on the task of addressing something like how this story engages with uh critical theory or feminism or anything like that. You know, this may come up naturally as we talk about what is going on in this story, especially that last line, which is out of our bodies will come treasures that make our lives worthwhile. You know, this line clearly reads as a parallel to motherhood and, and childbirth. And this is, you know, thematically all wrapped up and maybe how Daniel views women's bodies in terms of their utility and all of that is further wrapped up in cultural sex, sexual norms and practices. And so, as I said, you know, since this is a story about these topics, anyway, we read this story will lead us to comment on these ideas, but we are really going to try to do that. And I'm going to try to structure the discussion in a way that uh, keeps our eye on the way these ideas function within the text of the story itself. And so that's how we're going to really organize the discussion is, uh, is around the text itself. And what I want to do is lead us down a path that will uh, let us fully address th the irony found in the horrible and wonderful last line of the story. So having said all that, having given us a nice little prelude, uh, I'm still at a loss and <laughs> quite where to start our discussion, because I think there are two ways to really dive into this story. Um, one is maybe through the extra textual, extra textual elements like the allusions and literary precursors to the story. 
And the other is kind of looking at the title of this story and then pulling out the senses of that through the character's pathologies that motivate the plot. Uh, but I think I'm going to start with the main literary precursor to the story to situate the story in a broader context. And then maybe we can cover some of the illusions after we've got some more of the discussion under our belt. Yeah, this all sounds reasonable to me. And just, just to add something to your, your caveat there at the beginning, Brandon, I mean, is simply that also neither of us has any formal training in uh, feminism as uh, as critical theory. It's not something I have any uh, training in, uh, didn't get any training like that in, in grad school. So that's just not a lens that we're uh, really equipped or qualified to you know bring to this story, though I think this is a story that demands that. And uh, I would listen to someone else do that podcast. I would love to hear that podcast. I mean, I felt quite frankly, like bad. I have brushed up against uh, critical theory, uh, like feminist, the feminist theory and critical theory as it relates to feminism in my own studies. Um, but it was never a real focus of mine. And so it was one of those moments where the ice is kind of too thin to skate across. And I think we would have gotten in, we we would get in a lot of trouble if I tried to really bring those things into this story uh, rather than just uh, sticking close to the text, which is, which is our plan. So as I said, I want to talk about one of the core precursors or uh, literary contexts for this story. And that is the French folktale Bluebeard. Uh, it was Dr. Lisa Kroger who introduced this collection uh, that we read the story in that's called The Dead Hours of the Night, uh, who made this connection. She also mentions Rosemary's Baby here, which might have some other resonances in the story <laughs> in terms of like the inversion of ideas of the sacred and the profane and things like that. But I really want to hone in on Bluebeard here. Bluebeard is a French folktale. It was written down by uh, Charles Perrault in 1697. And the basic ingredients in the recipe of this story include typically a nobleman who keeps on marrying women and then they disappear. And the action of the story traditionally begins with a woman who, a new woman who was marrying the nobleman, and he lets her have access to the whole mansion. The whole estate, except for one room, which he keeps locked. This woman, uh, the character in whatever iteration of, of Bluebeard you come across, is maybe more curious than the other wives, though maybe not. And she sneaks the key to the locked room away. And when she opens the door to the locked room, she discovers lots of gore and dead bodies of the previous wives of her now husband. So she freaks out, drops the key, uh, and then her husband finds the blood on the key and determines to kill her. And maybe this is when he always kills the wives anyway, which is why maybe she wasn't more curious than any of the other women who came before her. But this woman's sister and brother-in-law end up finding out about this situation. They kill the nobleman first before he can kill his wife. And then the woman inherits the estate and lives happily ever after, if such a thing is possible. So, Glenn, I guess the first question I want to ask you is, one, if you agree with Dr. Kroger about my pathology having these shades of blue beard in it, and if you do agree with her, what elements do you feel that Lisa Tuttle kept from that folktale, and what do you feel she updated for this story? Well, I 100% agree with Kroger that this is in some ways a, an adaptation uh, or, you know, inspired by the, the, the story of, of Bluebeard. And we, we've 
talked about Shaw Perot stories before on the network. Uh, Puss in Boots comes from this collection, and that was a big deal for uh, Gene Wolfe's mad scientist story, or you know, one of his mad scientist stories, but one that we have done. That's the the novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. So uh, we've spent some time with these types of stories before, and and how uh, speculative fiction writers are, are are working with them. And there are a, a couple of interesting things that that jumped out to me as you were making this connection, which which I did not I did not make. I and I did not read the introduction, knowing that you would and would bring it to bear. And that's uh, part of the, the routine here, the sort of behind the scenes way of how we operate. But a number of things jumped out to me. So certainly one is, you know, obviously the, the locked room business, right, is the, the workshop. And there's a real fun way, actually, I think, in which Tuttle takes that element and makes that work for her here in this story, because we don't ever get literally... Bess going into that room secretly. And we also don't get her being locked out of the room. In fact, one of the first things that we're told is that Daniel invites her in, shows her around so that she can see, you know, what's in here. Everything in here is just my hobby. It's just, you know, podcast recording equipment and a whole bunch of books. Nothing's weird <laughs> here. You know, it's just a really important part of my life that I want you to know about. But hey, if you don't like Lovecraft, that's fine. You don't have to, right? That's that's what's going on here. And, and that seems awesome, right? He's all on the up and up about this. But then he actually does shut her out when she says that she wants to go in again, right? That when she wants to share this with him. And so it's really kind of metaphorically, right, that we get that happening, that we get her sneaking into the room is really actually that she goes to other bookshops and gets books and uh, does this all at home. And that's, I think, really a great way to you know make a twist on that element of the story. I think also there's this sense of inheritance that that Lisa Tuttle plays with from Bluebeard. And it's not like, first of all, yes, uh, Bess does inherit some property, but it's from her grandmother. But she is also looking from some, she Bess is also looking for some kind of inheritance from Daniel, uh, which is the true wealth of the world, like this philosopher's stone, eternal life, transformation, enlightenment, knowledge, uh, nirvana, like whatever you'd like to call it. Um, that is what she is after. And I think one thing that Lisa Tuttle updates here for this story is that it's not the woman's curiosity, strictly speaking, that leads her to this inheritance. And it's not the help of her sister-in-law and brother who her sister and brother-in-law who intervene to get rid of Bluebeard. It's Bess herself who kind of seeks to take over uh, to be the vessel of inheritance for Daniel, if that makes any sense. She seeks to be the bearer uh, and so become the thing that Daniel is. It would be like the, if, if in the classical sense of the nobleman and Bluebeard, if the woman became the castle, right? And that's what inheritance <laughs> meant. It's, it's not that you get to live in it. It's that you become it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's another interesting play on the idea of what it means to inherit from a man in some sense, uh, this odd sense of that. Well, I suppose another twist on on the Bluebeard story that happens here is that Bess doesn't get killed, right? It's not like, you know, Daniel discovers that uh, you know, she's gotten into the alchemy, that, that, you know, she knows what he's up to, and then he kills her. You know, what he does is is break up with her, but then also invites her to really participate in what's happening in the secret room in a big way. So it would be like if, you know, in the story Bluebeard, uh, Bluebeard catches, you know, the, the woman who's the protagonist of the story catches her opening the secret door and says, well, 
I guess now there's only two options. Either I can kill you or you can join me and help me kill other women. Right. And, and, and then <laughs> protagonist of the story says, yeah, let's do that. Let's go with option B. I'm going to help you kill other people. I'll help you in prison and kill other people. And that's a real twist that I did not see coming in this story. It is. It's it's a dark take on the Bluebeard tale, though. I think that that has also been done before in different adaptations. Um, and that is that is a fascinating take on Bluebeard. If you know, what if the woman loves Bluebeard enough to become complicit in his evil? But hey, Bess does end up dying because um, Daniel has sperm, apparently, that produces cancer in women, which is also extremely dark and never stated outright. We're never really sure if that's true in this story, because both Saskia and Bess maybe have a history of for the potential of, of cancer. So it's a very, very confused, uh, not in the text, but for the re- for the characters are very confused about the kind of world they live in and the world of facts and knowledge that they're engaged with because of their pathologies. Well, something else that jumps out to me in the, the Bluebeard story, of course, right, is that this story, this version of, of, of it, my pathology, is about characters who don't have anyone else. I mean, right, like Bess has Saskia and Saskia has Bess, but it turns out that, no, they really don't actually have each other. And in fact, this is a terrible relationship. But right, the whole Bluebeard story, you know, the, the fact that this one woman finally, you know, defeats Bluebeard or, you know, survives him, I guess is really the way to put that, is because she has family who care about her. And no one, you know, none of the three principal characters in this story seem to have that. I think we can assume that Michelle doesn't have that either. But I think something we have to be wondering about here is, you know, where where's Saskia's family? Like looking for her when she just goes missing because she's been imprisoned in, in Bess's basement, right? Surely someone... Uh, would call the police and that obviously the police then are going to figure out that Bess has been staying with her. They're going to know that they're friends and, you know, they're going to show up and ask Bess some questions, but that just does not seem to happen at all in this story, which suggests that Saskia just has no, nobody, no family. Uh, she working a job that, you know, if she just doesn't ever show up again, that that's maybe not too shocking of a thing. You know, so I don't know, you know, she's working at a bar or something like that. I don't know. But this is a story about people without any connections, without any other, you know, ties uh, in the real world, without any kind of community outside of the, the romantic and, and, and sexual relationship with this man. Um, and that in itself is kind of a, a horrifying thing. It really is. It speaks to the really cynical idea of love that we get like right at the beginning of the story, which is that the the need to be loved, which we all have a need, we're social. Uh, love is part of our social experience. It's something we express to one another and it's something we need from others. And the need to be loved is presented in this really cynical way as though love is really about a relationship with yourself that's working out something wrong with yourself. That kind of rings true to me in the way, you know, you see rom-coms be, for example, like love rescues people from their own bad situation in some way or their own flaws that like somebody else completes them, right? Jerry Maguire, like you complete me um, or like worse in ideas that uh, you're not lovable until you're perfect. That, 
ultimately, all of these ideas are really about the individual's relationship with themselves and have nothing to do with grace, forgiveness, gratitude, mercy, care, like the practical working out of love in a communal setting between people that each facet of that community, including marriage or romantic relationships, has its own fulfilling and uh, unfulfilling aspects that like the community kind of plays around with. So you participate in it. Um, and and yeah, this is a story about really selfish people who cynically believe that being loved is something they get from other people, not that loving is something they do for other people. And Bess's ideas about love about how to love Daniel are in fact a part of her own uh, unwellness, her own flaws as a character. I, I yeah. So I, what I really want to do now is is look at the characters, the the core cast of characters here, really in terms of their pathology. And I'm going to point out here again, like I pointed out at the end of our recap episode, that the story really opens with Saskia suggesting that Bess's pathology is that Bess only falls for men who are, quote, committed elsewhere. And Saskia says this in response to Bess telling Saskia that, like, Bess thinks that this is Saskia's whole routine. <laughs> but I think Saskia here feels a little bit like Bess is projecting onto her. And then later on, and then later on in this story, uh, Saskia tells Bess what Saskia thinks of her own pathology, what she thinks that is. And Saskia says that is, quote, to be hooked on men who are incapable of loving her. And so what I'm pointing out by doing this actually is to say that in a story called My Pathology, this titular phrase and then even the word itself is only spoken by Saskia. Saskia seems to be the one who's like into pathologies more so than Bess. And that's an interesting feature of the story. Um, and I don't know if you have comments on that, Glenn, but I, I want to also give us another caveat here, which is to say we're not mental health experts. And the way we maybe the best way we can approach this question about pathology uh, is more in terms of the fatal flaws of these characters, the tragic flaws that they have. So, one, Glenn, I wonder if you have any thoughts about Saskia, the word pathology being Saskia's in this story. And then we can get into maybe thinking about what each of these main characters' fatal flaws are in this tale. Well, I think this to me just screams that at least between Bess and Saskia, Saskia is the most self-aware of them. Or, you know, she's more self-aware than Bess is that she's thought about her own you know, personality traits and, and her habits and patterns in relationships. And so the fact that she can, you know, use the word pathology to you know, describe what those patterns and habits are, or just, you know, the fact that we as people have patterns and habits is, you know, that's a little bit of black humor there, right? To, to call it that, to describe it as, as a type of disease. And this, and even as we get that uttered in, in really the opening of the story, we get Bess in her role as the narrator, uh, taking that not as a joke, but taking it seriously and, and, you know, taking seriously the idea of love as a disease. But I think that this suggests that when Saskia at the end tells Bess that, 
hey, I, you know, I just was hooking up with Daniel. It was casual sex. It didn't mean anything to me. Uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it and I definitely was betraying you in some sense and hiding this from you and was hoping not to get caught. But now that I've been caught, I can walk away from this because my pathology is not that I have a, a need to, to cling to Daniel here. That's your deal. That's your thing. So I am right. capable of letting you have that, right? Like I'm self-aware enough that I can, I can see what you need and see what I need and get myself out of the situation. Of course, she doesn't get herself out of the situation. But anyway, it was a sort of rambling way just to say that I think Sasuke is a little more self-aware than Bess is. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the the way the harder really lands in this story is that by giving Saskia this uh, set more self-aware sense, the theft of her bodily autonomy is more horrifying. It lands in a different way because it's Saskia the one is the one who says, I know exactly what kind of situation I'm in. I don't want to be in it. I don't want this ovarian cyst. And so I'm just going to take care of all of this and maybe get myself out of this whole terrible situation that I'm in. Like she's reflected enough. So listen, Saskia is unwise, right? Like she's walked down the wrong path here. Uh, she's abandoned a certain way of living that like cares for other people, but she's self-aware enough and reflective enough to know to get out of it and that it's time to get out of it. And then the horror is that she's not allowed to, that she's really literally locked into Daniel's worldview and practices against her will by the, by the end of the story. So it adds weight, I think, to the horror element of this story as well. Well, one of the things I think we could say to, to characterize Saskia and Saskia's pathology is that it seems, you know, seeing all of this through Bess's lens anyway, it seems that what she is principally interested in about men who are committed elsewhere is that they can't become committed to her, right? That she's not wanting committed relationships. And so that's what's appealing to her about carrying on affairs with men who are in other relationships, you know, whether they're, they're marriages or, or, or not, that they remain casual for her, that she's able herself to remain uncommitted. And so, yeah, that's a huge part of the horror here from Saskia's perspective, right? If we were telling this story, you know, maybe in the third person from the point of view of, of Saskia, that that would be the horror here. That would be the the theme that we're getting throughout is that, you know, she wants to maintain her independence and her freedom from relationships, right? Even while she has sexual and romantic needs that she, she wants to get fulfilled. She wants to do that without becoming entangled, becoming trapped, right? But it, the story ends with her becoming trapped. Right. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a great touch, I think, of Lisa Tuttle's to have the traumatic horror of the story really land in Saskia's lap rather than Bess's, who's really experiencing more of a psychological <laughs> horror type of situation. At least the, the horror, the way we read it, has a much more negative psychological effect on us, the readers, than it does on Bess. Uh, but let's take a moment to think about what Bess's fatal flaw or pathology here is in terms of the story. I talked a lot about in our recap episode about maybe a motivating cause for Bess's, what I see as Bess's pathology, and that's like rooted in Munchausen by proxy, which is when a caretaker gets attention from other caregivers, particularly doctors, by um, inducing sickness in who they are caring for. It's typically a parent-mother-child relationship. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I gave a bunch of reasons why I thought that might be the case in the story, including Bess's dream about her mother and the appendectomy. Um, but I uh, maybe Bess confusing um, the ideas that she needs to be sick in order to be loved. But to me, this really comes full circle at the end of the story when Bess requires Saskia to be sick in order to receive love from Daniel, which is maybe another expression of this on some sense. Bess is the most fatally flawed character I've maybe read in any story uh, of all time. <laughs> so that is not a comprehensive, uh, the, the Munchausen by proxy reading is not a, really a comprehensive list of her flaws or even her pathology, strictly speaking. Glenn, what is your real sense of Bess's fatal flaw, her pathology, as you were reading this story? Well, she's a pleaser, right? She wants to please other people. She thinks that's how she gets love from them. And I, I think you're right to uh, you know, ask what her relationship with her parents are like, who, who seem to be totally out of the picture, and uh, you know, the, whether they're dead or um, she's cut off ties from them. is not clear, though I think you know, the inheritance suggests that at least one of her parents is, is dead, if not both of them. But yeah, she's a pleaser. She's someone who wants to do whatever you want, right? wants to be whoever you want her to be so that you will like her and so that you will love her. And, you know, this manifests here in the story in her, uh, you know, even when Daniel tells her that he actually does not want her to get into his hobby, she can't help it. She needs to get into what he's into. She needs to become more like him uh, because she is worried that if she's not, that he'll, you know, not love her. He'll stop loving her or never come around to loving her. And that's something that terrifies her. And ultimately this ends up getting her in a position where one, she is imprisoning her best friend in her basement and, uh, keeping her so that, uh, she either will die from cancer or give birth to some weird fiction thing. You know, it's maybe not clear what's real in this story. That's something we're going to have to take up eventually. But yeah, she ends up imprisoning her own friend in her basement for this man in order to please him so that he will love her. And then also she herself decides not to get treatment for a, a cancer diagnosis, again, in order to to please him, right? So this, this need to please someone else and thinking that that's how one gets love and acceptance, that's her fatal flaw as a character. And it's a real disturbing character trait, you know, dialed up to 11 like it is here. It's certainly a heightened character trait. I mean, I think we all have experienced uh, crushes, romantic experiences, maybe relationships that haven't worked out where we realize we've lost ourselves a little bit in the other person's interest. And that's automatically a signal that the relationship is not going to work. When you are actively changing yourself and your worldview and your hobbies in order to feel affirmation or love from somebody else, especially in a romantic relationship, like particularly in a romantic relationship, though it happens with admiration and uh, imitation as well of people that uh, we want approval or affirmation from. But when it really plays out in a romantic relationship, that is a that is a sign that you need to take some time to yourself 
to reacquaintance yourself with yourself, perhaps maybe even jump into some kind of community of people who are into stuff like, Hey, I'm going to join a board gaming group just so I meet people who like what I like, you know, and remind what it's that, that dynamic is like to just enjoy things simply in community without requiring yourself to change in order to feel uh, approval. Yeah. Bess has got this up dialed up to such a heightened degree and that also lends itself to the horror of this story well best doesn't even really seem to have an identity or a personality on her own we don't know anything about any kinds of you know hobbies she has or anything like that we we know that she works a you know dumb office job uh and you know thinks about her home uh you know so this is like a pretty this is a portrait of a pretty boring person who's not actually all that interested in in anything and perhaps is just really totally characterized by this this fear of of being uh, alone fear of being unloved and so yeah that's her hobby it's possible that if we saw this story and had more backstory about Bess and saw that from outside of her subjective perspective right outside of her own narrative that you know what we would see is uh, someone who's sort of desperately looking for a long-term partnership in a kind of frantic way. Right. It it, it calls to mind the a type of person perhaps whose personality is always wrapped up in their romantic relationships because that's then something they can use to share and build friendships upon. They can talk about how hard their relationship is or how great it's going. And almost the worse the relationship is, the more they have something to share with friends. So the relationship isn't even really about the other person or even about themselves. It's about extending these tendrils of uh, needing to feel loved by others outside of the home, outside of the, the dates or whatever's taking place. Well, let's talk about Daniel now. What do you think his pathologies are, if you think he has any? I, I, I'd hate to have a reading of this story that uh, left us thinking that only the women have pathologies or fatal flaws. Uh, even though Daniel seems victorious in some sense in this story, that's not an indication that anything he's doing is right or that he doesn't have pathologies of his own. Right. I mean, Daniel's pathology may not have a whole lot to do with relationships uh, in the way that, you know, we're talking about Saskia and Bess. And I think especially Bess, actually. Uh, Daniel's pathology is that he's a freaking mad scientist. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess that's right. I, that's one way to put it. In, I think in like, uh, I don't know, psychoanalytic terms, we might say that he's got- <laughs> You're saying that's like not a psychoanalytic terms? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not, though it should be. I mean, that should be brought into uh, psychology more frequently. You're just a mad scientist. Get get your act together. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think Daniel's main flaw in this story- is his fetishization of the womb. Like he literally cannot have sex with a woman. He cannot become aroused by them unless he knows they have a womb. That is uh fetish. I mean, that's what fetish like means in psychoanalysis that like this object is required in order for uh, sexual arousal to even take place. So Daniel's got this sense that he needs like this complete female. He's got this sense of the, the sacred feminine that ultimately denies the, the women in his life of their own subjectivity. And he doesn't even care like how the degree to which Bess is willing to alter her own subjective experience of the world in order to match his view of the world. And also, 
he he doesn't even care how absurd his viewpoint actually is. Like somehow he's able to continually get these women and he's got this like wounded bird act that I find extremely distasteful. And maybe deep down in my heart, like another intuition I have about this story is that uh, Daniel's really old. Like Daniel's not some guy in his 20s. But that in 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 kind of like a bluebeard sense of this story, um, Daniel has successfully produced this stone a few times and needs to keep on producing it in order to live forever. It's not textually supported at all, but it's just this weird sense of how he's able to manipulate and prey on these women that he's been doing this for a long time. Yeah, I love this. I love this reading here. I mean, he's, you know, I don't know, he's Merlin or somebody, you know, you know, or, right. or has just managed to stay <laughs> hidden. But yeah, they could be thousands of years old or hundreds of years old. I, you know, I guess we'd we'd assume that he got into alchemy when everyone was into alchemy in the 16th century. So I assume he's about 500 years old at this point, if 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 that reading is true. And I I like that idea a, a lot. And and yeah, that would actually lend some like urgency to this. I mean, we have no idea what you know, the metaphysics of philosopher's stones are here, like how they confer, uh, you know, eternal life, you know, what that would actually look like. We, we have no idea, but the idea that he needs to, you know, re-up on that, <laughs> it's just like, you know, health potions or something. He needs to do this every once in a while. I mean, this is basically like tombs from the X-Files you're envisioning. Here, yeah, right? exactly. He needs a new liver every 70 years or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's actually in the story here, but that's a cool reading of it. But I think- Something we should say about Daniel is that we don't really have any sense that Daniel is motivated about relationships in the way that Bess and Saskia are, though they, of course, are motivated in ways that differ from each other. But clearly for Daniel, all he wants is this object that has to be produced, at least, you know, as far as he knows, right? The way he knows to get it is to grow it inside of a woman, to grow it inside of the the womb of a human woman. And so he needs women for this. And so his behavior about sex is really just as a means to an end. It's completely possible that Daniel is a person who has no sexual attraction to women at all, that this is not something that he enjoys, but that he just wants the stone and this is the way to do it. And I guess that's really where I was characterizing him as a mad scientist and that, you know, the madness is the obsession with the thing, right? The object that he he wants is the philosopher's stone, you know, for reasons, and he doesn't care how he's going to get it, right? And that he will subject human beings to torture and death and imprisonment if that allows him to get what he wants. Absolutely. And it's that's what makes this line in the conversation between Saskia and Bess in the last act of the story so shocking, where they're like, Daniel is really serious about sex. Like, he takes sex really seriously. But maybe as people, we're not meant to take, like, sex 
seriously if it separates us from the person we're having sex with, right? Like, and that's what <laughs> Daniel's doing. And, that, and that's kind of what the women mean. That's what Saskia means. It's like, Daniel's really serious about sex, even though he has this casual relationship, even though he's receiving sexual pleasure from Bess without offering anything to her in return, really. Um, and he keeps on manipulating her more and more and more. And uh, that that this story then reads as the women being permissive to this masculine attitude about sex as it's cast in this story that separates the act from the person that the act is with or the care of that person. Um, and, and, you know, that's the, that's the feminist critique angle that maybe we're not well equipped to go down, but I think textually in this story, that's a really fascinating element that Lisa Tuttle has folded into this tale. One more thing I want to say, actually, just thinking about uh, you know whether Daniel is a kind of tombs character or not, right? Whether he's been <laughs> at this for a long time and is you know needing a new, uh, just needing another dose of his uh, eternal life from the philosopher's stone. I'm going to say I think that's not what's happening here, simply because he doesn't actually seem to be very good at this. Right. right. That as far as we know, it, it, it takes him at least three tries here to to get what he wants. And we still actually don't know that he's going to. We don't know that, you know, Saskia doesn't actually successfully tunnel out of the basement, uh, you know, three pages after this story actually ends. Right. So he doesn't seem to be very good at this. So that, that suggests to me that this is his first time. I think it's his first time being successful. And yeah, like I said, that reading is not there's nothing in the text to support the reading that Daniel has been at this for a long time. It's just kind of a fun thought or feeling to have uh, about this story. Um, Michelle does not seem to be suffering from cancer in any regard. And Daniel's mistake in his relationship with Michelle, he feels, is that he told her too much too soon so that she could choose to get out of the relationship before she got pregnant, but something about him is still so magnetic to her or Daniel is still trying to get Michelle on board with this whole thing while he's trying to get best pregnant. And there's a, a, a structural echo in this story between what best believes about Daniel and Michelle's relationship. And then the facts of Daniel and Bess's relationship as Daniel begins a relationship with Saskia. So those are things that we can, that's an element of the structure of the story that we can use to suggest that Daniel did this same thing to Michelle while Bess was getting roped into Daniel's whole mad uh, scientist routine. Right. Yeah. I think we, we have to read between the lines here a little bit to, to suss out what maybe did happen to Michelle. But I think it's clear that she also must have uh, gotten pregnant by Daniel and then, you know, went to the doctor and it turned out that, you know, this was a, a tumor and she also had it removed. And so she now is also incapable of becoming pregnant. And so Daniel is done with her. Right. But you know, she does something similar to what Bess does and now is actually helping him get Bess, right? By coming by and uh, masquerading as the, the the doctor. Well, she thinks that Bess is the mark and that she is the, you know, the real sacred wife in the, in the real sacred marriage that she has with Daniel. But then Michelle actually just disappears from the story. So, you know, we don't know what happened to her, but I, I kind of think she probably died of cancer. 
Yeah. I mean, that is a fair reading of the story. If we're looking at the way the structure reinforces uh, Daniel's behavior over the relationship between Michelle and Bess, I think that is a, a, a totally fair and, and supported reading of this story that makes a lot of sense. Well, because the alternative, I think, is that Daniel broke things off with Michelle. And that just does not seem to be what this is a story about, right? So I think my feeling is that the reason Michelle disappears, it is sort of between pages here, is that, yeah, she's actually gone through the same fate that Bess is going through now, that she's actually died from it. And and that may matter, you know, when I think at some point we're going to have to talk about like what actually happens on the next page of this story. Does Bess die from this cancer or 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 not? And, uh, you know, so what, what we think happened to Michelle will impact our answer to that question eventually. What happened to Michelle only matters to Bess insofar as Michelle's no longer in the picture. So that's another example of Bess's just real selfishness and lack of care for other people that aren't going to help her get what she wants out of life. And she views Michelle, even before she knows her, as competition for Daniel's attention. So since Bess, since Michelle isn't a real person, to Bess, Michelle leaving the picture is great. That works out for Bess. Bess doesn't care what happens to her. Um, and so that speaks more to Bess's character than it does to the way Tuttle has plotted this story. And I want to move us now into a kind of craft discussion of this story. You know, the, the, my pathology is full of tension and grotesque horror and psychological terror. And as I said before, it's really got one hell of a punchline that and we've brought that up a lot. So I want to talk about the craft of this story really by focusing on the super unhealthy idea at the core of the story, which I read as the idea that wholeheartedly adopting the viewpoint and worldview of your romantic partner is the spark that's really missing from your relationship. And I think Tuttle really builds the tension of this story around Bess's movement in the direction of wholeheartedly adopting Daniel's worldview and viewpoint. So I guess, Glenn, you know, if you agree with my statement, I'd like to know how you see Tuttle through the writing of this story, through the craft and technique of uh, the craft of the crafting of this story, how Tuttle moves best towards her devotion to Daniel. Like what sort of techniques really do you see Tuttle using to keep her audience constantly uncomfortable as they read this tale? This is a great question because what Tuttle does here is just absolutely magnificent. I, I don't really know how she does it, how she shows us her storyteller, her narrator, Bess, in a sympathetic light, right, where we want her to get what she wants, which is is Daniel, right, that we're, we're rooting for her in some way, but yet also shows us simultaneously Daniel as a character who we do not like uh, and who we see, you know, objectively, we see him for who he really is. Uh, you called him, you know, a dirtbag earlier, which I think is is definitely right. I mean, he really is the emblem of uh, what we used to call the sensitive 90s guy who is 90s <laughs> and is a guy, but is not actually sensitive. He's manipulative, right? And we see him for exactly what he is from the start, but best just does not, even as she's writing, you know, about him. And I just, I don't really, I don't know how to dissect the story from a craft perspective and see how Tuttle pulled that off. To me, this is actually just alchemy. 
it, it is a kind of alchemy and that that's absolutely true. I also don't know if I can really speak to the technique that Tuttle uses because I'm not sure that I could replicate it. And so all I can really say is what Tuttle does, how she keeps her audience uncomfortable is by making Daniel clearly uh, a bad type of dude. And maybe our next question will answer, shed a little more light on how this works. Is that Daniel is a really bad dude. And so that having Bess's character arc move towards total devotion is as a trajectory of the story, the mode of discomfort of the story as well. The mode of horror is somebody getting deeper into something that is clearly evil. And maybe then we have to talk now about the the role that the elements of the weird play in the way Tuttle has uh, outlined this story or how we can abstract an outline from this story. You know, Lisa Tuttle did not have to use paranormal and weird elements in order to build the suspense and horror in the story. Like we already talked about Bluebeard. There's no paranormal stuff in that. There's no weird stuff in that. It's just an evil dude. So Glenn, what role do you think the weird elements play in this story that allow Tuttle to kind of execute this plan, this trajectory? Well, I think ultimately the goal here, right? In in using the Philosopher's Stone in this way and treating it as a thing that's going to grant some kind of eternal life and then also giving it this characteristic, this property here in the story as being something that appears to be cancer uh, to, you know, modern medical techniques appears to be cancer. But Daniel, as the alchemist, you know, really insistent that it is not actually cancer and that if you just allow it to continue growing, that it's going to be transformative for you and give you eternal life, right? So introducing that element is really about introducing Confusion. It's about introducing a question about what is real and what isn't. Because I I don't think that this can be both things, right? I don't think that it can be cancer and the Philosopher's Stone. I think it is going to be either or. And so either Bess is going to die from this, and Saskia, and Michelle perhaps also has, or this actually is going to turn out to be the Philosopher's Stone and is going to be transformative in, in some way. Uh, and and to convey and, and and to bring eternal life. And so the thing that is, I think, really unsettling about how that functions in the story is that even while Daniel is manipulating best to get what he wants, you know, by explaining all of this to her and sort of pleading with her and also showing how it's in her interest, we're not fully equipped as readers, actually, to be sure if Daniel is lying in those moments or not, or or just wrong, right? I suppose he could be wrong, but actually believe what he's saying. We have no objective way to know that. We have no objective way to know if this actually is going to be bad news for Bess here. And that just keeps us from ever being comfortable in this, in this story and ever being quite sure what's actually going to happen and ever being quite sure what we should be rooting for, what we should be hoping to have happen. And so that element, I think adds a level of of horror and just disturbance to this story that without it, right, if this were just a straightforward story about a guy who manipulates one woman into helping him imprison another woman for, you know, totally non-supernatural, you know, non-speculative fiction reasons, uh, this that story might be horrific and, and unsettling, but I don't think it would be nearly as disturbing as this. 
I think you're right about that. I mean, another really disturbing element of the story is Bess's visions and, and dreams. And I want to point out this contrast, though I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do much with it. But one thing that really works to keep me unsettled in this story, especially upon rereading it, is the way that Bess sees the pregnancy symbolically represented in her vision of the world, right? So when she's pregnant, she sees this blister at the back of Daniel's house, kind of an outgrowth of that alchemical workshop. And that's a symbolic element of the story. Like Lisa Tuttle does not need to spell out what that means. It's really clear. Like the baby is Daniel's. It's a part of Daniel's home. It's a part of his practice. And that's before Bess moves in with Daniel one of the ways that the the underlying tension uh, and simmering of the plot really comes to a boil is when Bess sees this same thing on the back of Saskia's house, which I think unconsciously to us as readers suggests that Saskia doesn't see this as anything of Daniel's. And then, okay, what is Bess going to do about that? So that's another way of kind of layering in these supernatural and weird elements. Um, you know, like something like we'd seen, we've seen in Lovecraft's like from beyond, like she sees the symbolic truth of the world. And what it means then for Bess is that like, this is her chance to bring this new pregnancy into Daniel's home or in her home in some sense. And that's another way that the plot kind of symbolically moves and keeps us very uncomfortable as readers. Right. That scene was really disturbing. Uh, you know, it happens very quickly because it's it's actually meant to convey this, you know, this plot information to us, right? It's it's meant for Bess to realize that Saskia and Daniel have been having a sexual relationship together. And we move pretty quickly, right, to the confrontation. And that is a great technique, right? We're getting near the end of the story at that point. It's a kind of, you know, what what Kim Stanley Robinson, I guess, is called for Gene Wolfe, that slingshot technique where the pace quickens at the at the end and we're not going through it quite as slowly. But there are all sorts of questions that I think we can ask about Bess's vision of, of this at Saskia's because, you know, there's a question of if who can see these things and who can't. Bess seems to be the only person who can see these things, can't see them from the inside except that one time. Um, you know, why does she see it on Daniel's place and not her place? Why does she see it uh, at Saskia's place and then not Daniel's place, right? Like the metaphysics of how this works is not at all clear. And it does seem to be actually that Bess maybe has some kind of special ability to see things like this, right? That she actually has some kind of attunement with something supernatural, something magical about the world that these other characters don't have, though that's not something that's ever, you know, explored in any way. Right. She could also be mad herself. Right. Sense. That's the other reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move towards this final line of this story. And what I really want to do uh, first is contrast it with the first line of the story. Uh, the opening line of the story, as we as we brought up in our recap episode, is an allusion to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. You know, that is a marriage plot novel, though it's much more than that, <laughs> about a woman who ultimately kind of doesn't want to fall in love, but just can't help herself. And the opening line of that novel is about a truth universally acknowledged. The opening, the opening line of this story is talking about an 
unacknowledged universal truth, perhaps. Tuttle is maybe priming us to think of Bess as someone who is going to value that which is not easily won. Hey, which everybody does. But before we bring the final line into the discussion, I guess this is the point where I'd like to ask you, Glenn, why you think Lisa Tuttle is using this particular illusion, this famous first line of a story, for her horror story about, you know, ultimately women's bodies. I think there might be a lot of reasons <laughs> to invoke Pride and Prejudice <laughs> at the beginning of a story like this. And one of them is simply that Jane Austen, who I love, I love Jane Austen, though I've actually probably not read anything by Jane Austen in about 10 years. It might be, might be time to, to revisit that. But Jane Austen's books, I think, are texts that scholars, literary scholars, uh, you know, approaching literature through a feminist lens uh, have done a lot of, of work on. And, and, you know, also not just looking at the text, but also treating the text, you know, in its historical context, thinking about Jane Austen her, herself. Because, yeah, these are books about, and, and particularly Pride and Prejudice, right, is a book about a, a woman who maybe doesn't actually want to get married, but she has to get married because that's how she has any kind of material existence in, in the world, that this is what her class does. This is what women of her class do in order to have shelter and food and, and other material needs met is to find a husband. Then there's other stuff going on in Pride and Prejudice about you know, her you know, father's uh, fortune and, and so on that are, are creating all of these external pressures on her. And so so that might be something that Tuttle is is wanting to, you know, alert us to here is that we should be thinking about the the social and cultural pressures on young women to go out and find relationships whether or not they want them and to invite us to think in particular about Bess's family situation, her relationship with her parents, uh, in addition to her relationship with you know society or her place in society writ large. And I think you've done a really great job, Brandon, of teasing out with the, the dream that Bess's relationship with her parents and maybe particularly her mother is icky, uh, complicated, right? And might be something that actually has really shaped her uh, in ways that Bess herself perhaps is unaware of. I think it's a great point to bring out the way that the opening line of Jane Austen's novel gets us to think about families, because the opening line of that novel is really the parents kind of talking about these ideas, the mother and father at the absence of Liz, the, the main character of the novel. And so the, even in, a, in, the, in that sense, the family role, the social role, all of those things about our daughters getting too old to be married, who the new bachelor came into town, you know, a stranger comes to town with wealth. Is he going to be the one? He's an eligible bachelor. Our daughter should be involved with him. All of those stuff are the social concerns of the parents more than of the, the daughter, uh, the main character of the, the novel, Liz. Right. Well, something we should point out too, actually, right, is that, yeah, uh, Lizzie Bennett, Elizabeth Bennett. Hey, Bess is also actually short for Elizabeth. So the characters have the same name. Yes. <laughs> I did not catch that at all. And I'm glad you just brought that up. Um, well, let's let's now get to the final line of the story. And then and then after we talk about that, we can maybe talk about the next page and then and then we'll be wrapping up the episode. So as we think about this final line of the story in contrast with the first line, um, I'm just going to repeat the final line of the story, which is, once again, out of our bodies will come treasures, which will have made our lives worthwhile. 
this line is spoken, I think, about both Saskia and Bess. It's our lives. But the way it's brought into the text at the end, it has this more universal hue to it, the more universal applicability maybe to all women. And it's this switch to the universal applicability of this line that gives it its chilling effect, I think, on a, on a craft level. And as I said, it's a line that evokes the idea that women are the ones who bear and produce children. And so in a sense, like the usurpation of bodily autonomy is a really big part of all, of this story. Like the woman's body is for producing something out of it that will give life meaning. And we see in this story that Daniel is really trying to control the bodies of women. And at the end of the story, Bess kidnaps Saskia in order to control another woman's body. So I wonder, Glenn, first, maybe what your first sense of this line was when you read the story, but then also how you see this line functioning, especially in light of Daniel and Bess's usurpation of Saskia's bodily autonomy. Another question might be like, should we be reading the this last line of this story as a kind of deranged hope for Bess? Well, I think it certainly is a deranged hope. Uh, my uh, understanding, and maybe here's where we really ought to just lay our our cards on the table here about what we think actually, you know, happens. Uh, you know, after this story ends, what happens to these characters? I am perfectly willing to believe that this you know pea-sized stone that came out of Bess's cyst did actually make gold when Daniel did stuff with it. I, I will believe in, you know, that this numinous element here is actually real, that it, this is not a, a delusion of, of Bess's here. But at the same time, I do not believe that Bess is going to survive this. I think she's got cancer and she's going to die from it. And I think that's what's going to happen to Saskia as, as well. It may be that there are magic stones growing inside of them, but those magic stones, I think, are going to kill them. And so my reading then of this line is really, really dark because it's not simply that out of our bodies, uh, you know, our, tr our treasures, you know, it's, it's, it's not simply that out of our bodies, there's going to you know be treasures, treasures are going to come and that's going to make our lives worthwhile. It's going to give a, a different and a new meaning to our lives, no matter what else happens with our lives, right? Because the no matter what else happens with our lives is, is that we actually have to die in order for these things to come into being, right? So that's a real like dark view of, of motherhood there, right? This idea that, that you actually are going to have to die in order to give birth to this new thing. So you will never actually encounter, interact with the treasure that is coming out of your body. Right. The sentence almost feels clipped, like it's missing something, like a phrase, like the phrase to Daniel, perhaps like right. out of our bodies will come treasures, which will have made our lives worthwhile to Daniel. Right. And that's the real implication of this line of Bess's total derangement at the end of this, at the end of this story, that she's willing to sacrifice herself, sacrifice others in order to even posthumously believe that Daniel loved her. 
And we really get the sense at the end of this story, no matter who lives and who dies, though I think both the women are likely to die, that Daniel will get away scot-free. That Besk, he can just plausibly deny as his neighbor that, no, he didn't hear anybody screaming in the basement because it was soundproofed. That there's no way to test for paternity because Saskia wasn't really pregnant. She had a tumor. And so Daniel has all of this plausible deniability built up. We know he's a deceitful man. We know he's a liar, that he'll do anything to get what he wants and that there will be no consequences for him. And that is another that I mean, that to me is really what page four is, is Willem Dafoe showing up and knocking on Daniel's <laughs> door and he and he has to go return some videotapes or something like that. <laughs> well, there certainly is a version of this story that I would love to read where this is a detective story where it's all already happened. And yeah, the detective has to crack the case. I mean, I love the story as we get it, obviously, and as resonances that that detective story would 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 lose. But uh, yeah, I would love that version of the story for sure. But yeah, I think. You're absolutely right to say, yeah, we have to insert the word, you know, you know, for Daniel or to Daniel here at the end of this line. And also, I think we just have to understand that best does not mean our lives worthwhile. She means our deaths. That's what she's talking about. Our deaths are going to be worthwhile. And it's uh, ultimately then becomes, you know, it's not just a mad scientist story. It's kind of a story about a serial killer who convinces his victims to be glad that they're his victims. It certainly has that edge to it. Well, I think I think that's a great point as well. I mean, but I'd, I'd hate to end our conversation by really focusing on how this story is about Daniel uh, when it's really about these two women who are his victims. But I also think that's kind of the point of this story is how Lisa Tuttle through the lens of these either willing or unwilling victims of Daniel's is commenting on the way that we are willing to be interested in the in the perpetrator and how interesting they are. I mean, this fascination with serial killers, I'm glad you brought that up, is like a big part of American culture, right? We think about how strange the pathology of serial killers are and really don't think about the victims all that much. And even though this story is written through the lens of one of these victims... We just ended our conversation talking about how Daniel is really the, the perpetrator here. And hey, I think that's part of the point of the story, too. And, and maybe that's a good note to just leave this discomfort of this story lingering on is how we are willing to hear or think more about the stories of uh, psychopathology and sociopaths and and strange people than we are to think about their victims. So on that uncomfortable note, that's <laughs> going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to commission an, an episode, we would love to do that for you. So please do get in touch. You can do that via Twitter or Reddit. You can message us on Patreon, or you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. And while you were on the internet doing that, while you're on the internet commissioning an episode, please also head on over to the Clay Temple forums or drop by our subreddit and let us know what you thought of my pathology. I think we really admired this story on a lot of levels, though also are probably not going to sleep well again for, for quite a while. <laughs> we would love to hear about your experiences with this story as well. And so until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>